Well, about three years ago, I was super blessed to get to receive laser eye surgery. I did something and opted for a surgery called the smile surgery, which had nothing to do with my mouth, everything to do with my eyes. And it was this incredible, magical thing. Some of you probably have had that or know somebody that's had corrective surgery. Well, they, they, they go through this whole deal of getting you ready, takes hours upon hours just for a 90-second procedure. And once you get into the procedure, it's all kind of weird, and they, they lay you on this chair, and then they, it, it rolls back underneath this space-age-looking laser, and then you lay down there, and this thing comes over your eye. They put a few drops in it. They make sure your eye won't close with these weird-looking reverse clamps. <laughs> it's really strange. And then they tell you, do not move your eye. And you stare at this green laser. 45 seconds, one eye's done, the other eye, 45 seconds, then you're finished. And they tell you to stand up and just walk. I was really freaked out by that, but I, all of a sudden, I could just go. Well, when I opened my eyes again and looked around to walk through the room into the, into the recovery area, everything was so strange. The whole room looked like somebody had left on a fog machine from a rock concert, or, or somebody had left on a hot shower and there was just steam everywhere. Well, they take you to the recovery room and they put the old lady sunglasses on you and they tell you, just rest. And they tell you to go back to your hotel because you got to come the next day and they say, just rest. And you're expecting like, I don't know if this worked or not. You have no idea because everything looks foggy. So I went back to the hotel and you sleep. And then the next morning, it's like, bam-o. The whole world was brand new. For the first time in my life, I opened up my eyes that I could remember and I could see. I didn't have to put contacts in. I didn't have to put uh, glasses on. I no longer had to read like this at night. This is how I used to read books. It was incredible. My whole world was opened up. It was like magic. One time I was blind as a bat. And then the next moment, in less than 24 hours, I could see. I could read across the room. It was incredible. Now, in a lot of ways, that's another analogy for what Paul is trying to do in the book of Ephesians. He spent three chapters that we've walked through in the last seven weeks explaining to us, you gotta have new eyes. You gotta open the eyes of your heart because you have been given a brand new way of living. And for three chapters, he's explained all this great theology of who we are to try to get us to have an aha, to have our eyes open to see the world brand new, to open our eyes and see that everything has changed, that we've been chosen in Christ. Paul's letter to Ephesus is a letter to say, have an aha moment. You have been chosen. There is now no longer any barrier between Jew or Gentile. There is no longer a dividing line of hostility between those who are inside and outside. Now a new humanity has come. Everything has been made new. And after three chapters, he wants us to get to a turning point. The book of Ephesians structurally breaks down really easy. Three chapters of theology and then three chapters of practice. Three chapters of orthodoxy, three chapters of orthopraxy. And it's to say, here's who you are, now go and live this life. Or what I'm gonna call this morning, it's our aha 
of chapters one through three should become an I will or I will be doing these things or I am this. This is how I live and act in chapters four through six. And so today we make the transition and the transition from theology to practice begins like this. Chapter four, verse one, Paul says to us, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, key word, it doesn't sound like a key word to our our ears, but we'll talk about that here in a second. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. All this I've told you for three chapters. Because of this calling and this identity, everything I've said, now, therefore, I urge you to live a completely different life. Now, just a little structural work, a little bit of the, of the grammar here. It's a Paul hack. When you're reading Paul, a way to hack Paul to know what's going on is to look for words like then or therefore or I plead or I urge. Because when Paul uses those terms, he's always saying, I'm about to tell you how to apply what I've just said. He uses the word here, then or therefore. And it's a turning of a page. You can maybe think about it like this. It's a pretty cheesy analogy, but it works like this. It is all this stuff I've told you in chapters one through three of who you are now walk into a new world, a new life, and be worthy of the calling that you've received. It is an open door word. And so he's going to tell us now what a worthy life looks like. And I want you to know this. And this is where we're gonna sit. He's gonna begin with something that is unexpected. Of all the things he said, you are chosen, you are predestined, you are, the, you are going to be a new humanity. You have been made in Christ to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. All that, he's going to begin to make a turn to say, let me show you what this looks like. But I think it's important to remind ourselves of this. When it comes to Paul, he always does this. He's gonna always tell us that your identity in Christ precedes your behavior. He's not gonna tell you how to live until he's told you who you are. And so whatever we say today, and I'm a little nervous about this message because it is a challenge. In fact, I'm a lot nervous about this message today. I'm a lot nervous about it because it's a challenge to know my identity so that I can actually know how to live. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's told us who we are. Now he's going to walk us through the door and he's gonna begin with something surprising. You wanna know what a life worthy of the gospel looks like? It's a little bit unexpected to my ears. A life worthy of the gospel is this, verse two and three. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. As I read that over and over this week, it was unexpected to my ears. Not surprising, but unexpected because as I tried to read it, and I want you to kind of get yourself in this place to try to hear this for what he's saying, I wouldn't have said this. 
If Paul comes to me and goes, I want to tell you how to live a life worthy of the calling you received, I'd get real excited, right? I'd be like, all right, Paul, give it to me. Show me what I need to do. I want to be told exactly how to live a life that's worthy of Jesus dying for me. And then Paul goes, okay, I'll give it to you. I want you to live in such a way that you're humble and gentle and patient and loving because the best witness you have will be the unity you share in Christ. Now, it's not surprising that he says that because we all value unity, but it is alarming a little bit because we wouldn't probably talk about that, would we? I don't think it's a letdown, but I wouldn't talk about unity with such importance and first level writing. Probably, if I'm being honest, because unity is just simply messy. It's a lot easier for me to ignore you than it is for me to be unified with you. And it's a lot easier for me to be impatient with you and crass with you if I disagree with you than it is for me to be gentle and patient. Are y'all with me? So today we're gonna look at unity. And what I believe is Paul's greatest piece on unity is just six little verses. Because Paul is going to share with us that while unity is messy, it is worth talking about. So we gotta take a little sidestep, not away from the text, but just a sidestep to kind of get us to understand ourselves for a little bit. Because when it comes to unity, what makes unity messy is a couple things. There's a couple layers going on with us. Each and every one of us, I'm going to assume that everybody's with me on this. I really just tried to look at myself. I'm going to assume that a lot of people are like me today, and I apologize if you're not. But the first layer of this that makes unity so messy is every one of us struggle with something called fundamental attribution error. Anybody heard of fundamental attribution error? You may have heard of it in a different light. It's called cognitive bias. And fundamental attribution error is what causes us, if you've never heard of it, to attribute other people's errors to their character, to who they are, while at the same time, attributing our errors to circumstance. Y'all with me? It's, I give a lot of grace to myself. You're an idiot, right? Right? I'll give you an example of this so we can understand this. This is fundamental attribution error or cognitive bias. She's always late. (laughs) She's lazy and she's unorganized. Well, you were late last week. It's my kid's fault. (laughs) I'm too busy. I just have too much going on. That's fundamental attribution error. It's when we put on other people who they are as their character, and then we only put on ourselves when we mess up circumstance and our situation. And guys, we do this all the time. You read the Bible different than me. You, 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 you interpret that scripture different than me. You must be overly conservative Pharisee. Well, you may be reading that wrong too, Jake. You know, I just haven't studied it that much. 
I don't get along with them in church. They're too demonstrative. They must be liberal. They must be really, they must be really out there and, and think God just wants us to do whatever. I saw you tapping your foot. Well, I just like the music. See what we do? That's fundamental attribution error. And that's what causes unity on the first layer to be really messy because what we often assume about people is the worst when we only assume about ourselves the best. And that helps us understand why Paul begins with be patient and gentle and humble and loving. That's layer one. Layer two it really just comes down to this, that division is easier than unity, isn't it? Now, none of us would come down and want to say that out loud. None of us want to admit that, but we know that being divisive is easier than being unified. And I want to illustrate this, but before I illustrate just this, just remember that identity always precedes behavior. And what Paul is talking about and why I believe he starts with unity as a life worthy of the calling of Christ is that he understands that our identity is at stake when it's not followed by a behavior of unity. How many people don't know Christ today because so many Christians are divided? Man, I would, I would hate to even venture a guess. <laughs> all of them thank you Brad's not afraid to venture I guess <laughs> okay all of us on some level so I want to illustrate this on how division is often easier than unity and I'm going to give us three different little areas I'm going to do a little skit and these are meant to be funny you can laugh if you want to you may not laugh after I do them but the first one that makes unity so hard is that we like to divide over tradition. And that sounds a little bit like this. Hey, brother, I, I noticed that you had a Church of Christ sticker on the back of your car. It is so good to see somebody that belongs to the brotherhood and the sisterhood. Oh, yeah. I just, you know, I love... I love my church, and it is good. We're, we're, it's hard to see, find Christians anymore in the world today. Yeah, you're right. You know, I, I, was, I had a scripture shared with you this morning, and I just, I just feel like I need to share something with you. Do you mind if I get your number so I can text you this scripture? The scripture came from my praise team leader, and he sent it out. I'm on the praise team at our church, and he sent it out to us this morning, and I'd, I'd love to share that with you since we've got this bond of, of church family. Praise team, huh? You can share that passage with me. But I'm pretty sure I'm not going to read it. Because I don't think the Bible teaches praise teams. Can you believe these people over here? This guy, he thinks there's a praise team out there. I have never found anything in my New Living Translation about having a praise team and multiple worship leaders. New Living Translation, huh? Pretty sure there's just one authorized version of Scripture. 
And it ain't NLT, it's KJV. I'm not sure I can have unity with you or that other guy if you don't read the version of the Bible I read. And on and on it goes, doesn't it? Tradition. I could go on, I could step on everybody's toes in here. I could step on my own. But that's not the only thing we divide over. Another thing we divide over is worldview, right? That sounds a little bit like this. You believe those Christians dividing over such silly things? I'm glad I don't belong to a church like that anymore. Look at all those different positions and different things they stand on. What a bunch of losers. I don't know if people say that. I was watching MSNBC the other day, and there was a report on, on uh, how the church in America and Christianity is in such decline. Have you ever heard anything like that? Yeah, I have heard that. Hold up. MSNBC, huh? I think you ought to know that there's only God-fearing America, Americans listen to news that's fair and balanced. I don't think I can be friends with you or even want to hear about you if you listen to such liberal and progressive news. You must be crazy. Worldview. I got a lot more on there, but I'm not going to go any further on that one. <laughs> we divide over that. We fundamentally attribute error to people because their tradition is different or their worldview is different. And then the last one, I would say is probably even more common than we want to admit. And that's simply individualism. And it sounds like this. I don't want any part of a group of people that are hypocrites like that. Yeah, I love the Bible and yeah, I love Jesus. But I can read scripture and I can do my own thing because me and Jesus, that's all I need. And now we have thousands of not just denominations, but of people that consider themselves Christian or spiritual, but don't have church family. So we divide over these things because division is easier than unity. And it's unfortunate but it is our reality, isn't it, church? It's messy. It's hard to talk about. That's why I'm nervous. I'm wondering who wants to punch me after this sermon. But we've got to talk about these things because Paul talks about them. And what he urges us to do is to live a life. Did you notice those four things? Humility, patience, gentleness, and love are all communal commands. You can't do that here. And you can't be gentle here or patient here. So Paul urges us to do something different. The question I really wrestle with this week is, do you believe, do I believe, do we believe it's possible to disagree with someone about their church tradition and still love them, be gentle with them, and practice patience with them? 
Do we believe it's possible to disagree with somebody on their politics or the next news cycle and still walk with them in faith and in communion with Jesus? Do you believe that it's possible? Not to ignore them, not to push them aside, but to walk with them. Do you believe it's possible? Because Paul does. It's interesting, he doesn't talk about issues. He talks about integrity. He talks about the character and nature of our identity in Christ. And let me assure you that his letter to Ephesus is not written to a homogenous group of people who all saw the same way and the same things the same way. It is written to a group of people who probably had less in common than we do, much less, much more difficulty. And so he tells them, because of your identity, be patient, be gentle, be loving, be, hum- be humble. But then he says this in verse three through six, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, Another way to say make every effort, and your translation may say this, is be zealous to keep the unity of the Spirit. And just as a side note, not in my notes, it's interesting that the unity is not the unity of the Canadian Church of Christ or the unity of my little group of friends or the unity of Jake or the unity of Barry or the unity of the eldership. It is the unity of the Holy Spirit. It's his unity. And he says, be zealous for this type of unity. Another word for zeal would be have passion for unity. Be devoted to it. Give your whole heart to be unified. So the question is, are we zealous for unity or are we zealous to be right about our tradition and worldview? Or to be right about our level of comfortability? Because church, there is a lot at stake Jesus in his prayer for unity in John 17 says, Lord, make them all unified so that the world could know who you are. Jesus attributes unity to evangelism. That the way that the world's gonna see you is not only through love, that's what he says in chapter 14 and 15, but in 17 he says the world's gonna know who you are by how unified you are, by how you live. So we need to know this. When we seek, when we're zealous For unity, what divides us diminishes and what unites us begins to surface. When we are zealous to seek humility and understanding and patience and gentleness in speech, man, the things that are stronger begin to surface and the things that divide begin to be pushed to the side. Are you zealous to be right or are you zealous to unite? That's Paul's challenge here. Because unity displays the very best of Jesus' kingdom because it takes the very heart of who Jesus is. His gentleness, his patience, his peace, his humility, his love. And that is why the first display of our new identity to Paul is unity. So one more question, and then we're gonna look at verse five and six, four, five, and six. Are we willing? This is where the rubber meets the road to answer this question. 
Are we willing to put Jesus' identity that he has given us in front of the things that divide? Our division over important topics, they're often disordered love. It's us wanting to be comfortable. Are we willing to put Jesus' identity in front of traditions that we often uphold as biblical that we really don't know if they're biblical or not? Are we willing to put Jesus' identity in front of our own desires and worldviews? And hear me, I'm not saying that those things, traditions and worldviews should just be cast out as unimportant. I am not saying that. What I'm saying is when we disagree, when we talk about difficult things, will we be willing to struggle in humility and patience and gentleness and love with each other? so that the world can see that when we struggle, we are living a life worthy of the gospel. Because when we learn and listen together, when we're patient with each other's growth, even when some of us are lagging behind and it may be frustrating, when we're gentle in conversation, even when you may feel like you're 100% correct, and when we love above all, the world takes notice. Because it's so unlike our world, amen? Our world is quick to condemn. And the New Testament tells us to be quick to listen. So how do we do that? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer here. I think unity is found in what Paul already gives us. Paul very rarely in his writing, give, writings will give complete or full lists He lists gifts of the Spirit in Romans. It's not a full list. It's not every gift of the Spirit. He'll list a gift of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. It's not a full list. He'll he'll list the fruit of the Spirit, nine fruits of the Spirit. I don't think that's all nine. But here, I think he gives you a picture of what is complete unity because he gives us seven. And Paul's a Jew and seven means one thing. I'm giving you every bit of it. It's complete. And so while we stand on different things and we say, nope, I can't have unity with you if you do like that, brother. I can't have fellowship with you if you worship like that, if you raise your hands, if you do this, we may divide over those things. Paul says, stop standing on your own little kingdom, right? And get to the foundation of what unites. What's essential for unity? There's one body, this Whose body is it? Not ours. We make it up, but it ain't ours. It's Christ. There's one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the foundation. There's one hope among Christians, knowing that while we may disagree about a lot of ways that we get there, we are all headed in the same direction. It is a hope of a coming kingdom that we call heaven. And we look forward to it. And we have one allegiance in life to one Lord. There is no other. So we might divide over who we vote for and all that stuff, but no Christian should be putting any political official as a Lord in their life because we have one allegiance. And so you may vote differently or see things societally different than me, but when we come together under one Lord, man, we are walking hand in hand together. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. That word is allegiance. 
one way of living, meaning, man, I don't know what's next. You don't know what's next. I don't know how to deal with this trial that I'm going through or this this diagnosis that somebody got. But we're one because we are putting our allegiance and trust in the king. Because we all, in this next one, have given our allegiance in water baptism of walking through the water with Jesus to say, I'm all in. Baptism is our symbol and our unifying symbol of I have given up every other allegiance for the one allegiance of Jesus Christ. And then that becomes complete. Seven ones, count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, under one Godhead. I wonder if Paul would tell us, why'd you add to the list? (laughs) I wonder if he'd ask us that. Why did you go ahead and add to the list? Because these seven things, I think all of us could spend the rest of our lives working this out, living a life worthy of the gospel, living into the one body of Christ, under the one spirit, living out one hope under one Lord of Jesus Christ, making choices to live by one faith to serve and love others like Jesus did to me because I'm living out my baptism under the Godhead, right? That's Christianity. All the little things we argue about and split over, those are important. Not saying they're not important. But when we start to do these things and start to stand up because we believe them and you don't, we're forgetting that Paul said, you got all you need, complete unity in Christ already. So church, I hope you're challenged by this. It has challenged me greatly because man, I like to be right. Even my opinions, I think, are right. I've never told myself, well, this is my opinion. I think I'm wrong, right? (laughs) I've never told anybody that. The point of my life as a Christian isn't to be right. The point of my life as a Christian is to be faithful. And I've got all I need to be unified. And I hope you have a realization today, an aha, so that you can live a life of I will. I will be unified with my brothers and sisters because I'm gonna practice gentleness. I'm gonna be patient. I'm gonna be humble. And most of all, I'm gonna love them. And if I have to outlove somebody, even when they're being ugly, I'm gonna outlove them. If I have to eat a bunch of sandwiches I don't want to eat <laughs> because it is difficult to be with this person, I'm going to be patient. That is our call, church family. I hope today you've heard something that challenged you. I hope you did not hear, well, Jake says just anything goes in church. No, I didn't. You misheard everything I said, if that's what, if that's what you heard. I hope what you heard today is we as a church family need to be committed to working with each other and loving each other so the world can see that we are different. What makes us peculiar is not how we express ourselves in worship. What makes us peculiar is how we treat each other when we disagree because it's so countercultural. And so may we be those type of people. We love you guys. I love this church family. Love seeing a full house today. Love seeing Kirk and Michelle here today with that grandbaby. This is a good church, guys. 
And we only get better when we lean into this kind of unity. May it be done. If you need anything this morning, we're here for you. Let's stand together.